Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh Today, February 23rd, we mark a very sobering anniversary. It was one year ago today that Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed while he was out jogging in Satilla Shores, a community just outside of Brunswick, Georgia. And uh, it, it, at the time, we were not really aware of what had happened in the immediate aftermath of that shooting. But in early May, a video of the shooting, the confrontation that Arbery had with three white men uh, uh, became public and shocked people here in Georgia, across the country. And it became part of a larger scenario in which activists began looking at how we could find justice for uh, Ahmad Arbery's death. Uh, but also the police shootings of uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, and others. Um, And, of course, we all remember that there was a summer of protests, demonstrations. Black Lives Matter uh, became a more vital organization than ever before in looking for ways to find some way to end systemic racism, to look at police violence against black Americans, and uh, to demand changes in the law that would once and for all find equal justice for everyone. So that's a year ago that all of this began, and we want to look at it today with a panel that I think is going to have a lot of important and insightful things to say about all of this. Um, We start with my regular Tuesday partner on Political Rewind, Tamar Hallerman, the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tomorrow, one aspect of this that we will get to during the course of the show is uh, that um, there's a bill that has once again been introduced in the U.S. House that you were in Washington, still covering Washington for the AJC, when a previous iteration of that bill, uh, which was the uh, For the People Act, uh, was introduced to uh, change voting rights, to uh, 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 make a number of reforms that would, in fact, benefit uh, African Americans and other minorities. And I'm, I'm looking forward to your talking to us about that uh, bill in a few minutes. But in the meantime, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, we're also joined by reporter Larry Hobbs. He's a reporter with the Brunswick News, been there for about seven years now. And Larry, you covered the Ahmad Arbery case as it unfolded, right? Yes, sir. That's true. Um, From from day uh, one. And we will talk to you a little bit as we get started about uh, remembering what happened and uh, where we stand with that today. We're joined by our frequent panelist, uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, a political science professor at Emory University, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Hey, Andre, thank you for being here for, uh, for today's show. Thank you for having me. And we're joined by Marissa Dodson-McCall, the Public Policy Director for the Southern Center for Human Rights, uh, which is uh, one of the more, most important organizations looking at justice in criminal 
uh, uh, for, for in criminal justice uh, issues. And we're very glad that you could be with us today, too, Marissa. Thanks for having me, Bill. Good morning. Yeah. OK, uh, let's get started. Um, and, and, and I want to start by saying that I'm a little bit apprehensive. I'm feeling like I'm having a hard time putting words together this morning because this this date to me is so heavy upon, I think, all of us in terms of our understanding of what we have gone through in the last year and trying to get a sense of racism in this country and how to work toward the end of it. But let's start with this, Larry, the most simple uh, information about this. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of uh, the shooting of Ahmad Arbery, we didn't know until much later that it, it became a political football from the very start. The district attorney, two district attorneys in South Georgia, would not take on this case, refused to prosecute the defendants in this, Greg and Travis McMichael. They weren't defendants mm -hmm. at that point and William Roddy Bryan, who are now all charged with felony murder. But early on, uh, no one wanted to take this case on. Have I got that right? Uh, yes. Now, Gregory McMichael was a 20-plus year um, investigator with Jackie Johnson's district, the Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney's Office. Uh, immediately that Sunday afternoon, she recused herself. Um, she also called George, George Barnhill, who is the uh, district attorney in uh, Waycross. He gave, he was asked to come down and consult the Brunswick, the Glenn County Police on this issue. Uh, the, the Glenn County Police, uh, for whatever reasons, were not making any arrests that day. Um, and he advised them. Now, he stepped down, recused himself at the request of the Arbery family. It turns out his son, also at George Barnhill, is an assistant attorney with Jackie Johnson's district attorney. And that by April, this case is in the hands of Tom Durden, who is the Liberty, uh, Liberty County or Hinesville district attorney. Um, and that's, that's pretty much how it went. But yes, sir. Um, uh, and all of that happened before we were really all publicly aware of it, Tamar, because it wasn't until early May. In fact, I think the video of Ahmad Arbery being confronted by the McMichaels and William uh, Bryan, Roddy Bryan, who claimed that they thought he was a, a burglar, he'd been committing burglaries in the neighborhood. Um, I think that video appeared publicly for the first time on the same day George Floyd was killed. Um, in, in early May, tomorrow. But the point is, all this jockeying went on and we weren't aware of it at the time. Uh, Larry's shaking his head a little bit about the timeline. I think that the George Floyd death came a little <laughs> bit later. But it was actually um, looking at Larry's piece um, that, that we sent around. It, uh, that came on May 5th, which was the day that... Um, Glynn County convened a grand jury to consider criminal charges against the, the father-son duo. Um, but watching the video, it was so shocking. Um, you know, it was so shocking to, to see um, 
you know, the, the man in the bed of the pickup truck and just how brazen it was coming up, um, you know, point blank to Arbery um, and, you know, preparing to shoot him. And, um, you know, it was quickly removed from that radio station. It ended up being leaked by a local attorney. Um, but at that point, I think that's when the story really took off and, and everybody could see how haunting um, that image was and, and just how much of a miscarriage of justice there was in, up until that point. Uh, so I, I will make the correction myself, Larry. You're, you're right to point it out. Uh, George Floyd, uh, the, the, the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis was May 25th. So it was a few weeks right. later. I apologize for uh, getting that wrong. Andre Gillespie, just looking at the early uh, weeks and months of this case, the fact that it didn't get the attention of the Glynn County Police in the beginning, uh, the fact that it was passed from one DA to the next, in one case because the family wanted it to happen that way, but the fact that it was quite a while before it ended up where it now rests, which is in the hands of the Cobb County DA, what does this say to us about the uh, effort at some kind of swifter justice in this case? Well, I mean, you know, this strikes me as a case of procedural injustice. At least that's what the allegations are. And so it's the idea of um, handling this case with a lot of deference to the defendants and not the typical type of deference, you know, that assumes innocence until proven guilty, but the type of deference that's born out of a personal relationship. And so you do have, you know, the initial a DA bowing out for legitimate reasons, but then when you pass it on to a friend, right, then that's actually, you might be trying to maintain a certain appearance of objectivity that's actually not there. And it didn't take much once everybody saw, once they saw the light of day and people saw what was going on to see uh, the sort of, you know, where allegations of cronyism could actually be at play here in this particular case. Social scientists would probably be employing something that we call network analysis to figure out who knows whom and where the prior relationships were. And they didn't do enough to make sure that they sort of cut all of those ties so that a prosecutor who, um, you know, didn't have any personal ties was there. And then there is the sort of, you know, idea of you're just going to take people's uh, sort of face value sort of statement that, you know, this was a citizen's arrest. We did this in self-defense when the video says something that's completely different. Yeah, Marissa, I think what Andre just said is very important for us to to look at. Um, people shrugged this off. Law enforcement at first shrugged this off. They uh, seemed to believe the, the McMichael story, that they had stopped a man who they'd seen enter a, a house under construction, believed that he, Ahmaud Arbery, was responsible for a series of break-ins in the neighborhood, or at least they claim they thought he may have been responsible. Um, and... The story, certainly by the Glynn County Police, was accepted at face value when this all began. Absolutely. Marissa? And I think, you know, yes, can you hear me okay? Uh-huh. Um, yes, I, I, I think that what you're, what we're hitting on, and I think that we t- this, the anniversary um, today is uh, critically important because um, we can have this moment where people can look at that video um, and those circumstances and be really clear as to what side of things you're on. And we've kind of all dismissed, um, most of us have, that what they were doing was justifiable um, action. However, I think most, you know, importantly is that these kinds of things happen in our state um, 
uh, in terms of the use of force, sanctioned use of force against certain people happens um, often. And unfortunately, there isn't always a clear video of what happened in the way that we had here. Um, and the outrage that came two months later um, is, is indicative of uh, the kind of lull that communities get in, if you will, in terms of um, trusting law enforcement and trusting what they say happened. And this is, again, not new um, to our 21st century. This is something that has happened and been happening to our communities um, for a long time. It's just that uh, when uh, we can see things so vividly um, and when you can um, look at Mr. Arbery's circumstances and be clear about how force was used there, it brings about a conversation that we're having now to really look at the hundreds and thousands of black lives that are taken across this country kind of systemically on a regular basis. Um, I, I, I want to play a little bit of sound uh, before we expand on our conversation beyond just the Arbery case to just what Marissa is talking about, looking much more broadly at where we stand with criminal justice, equal justice for African-Americans and other minorities. But I, but I want to play a little sound, very remarkable sound, I think. My friend and colleague, Virginia Prescott, the host of On Second Thought, uh, with the work of Amelia Brock, our senior producer, who was at that point working on On Second Thought, did a show uh, last year in which they talked to Ahmaud Arbery's mother, uh, Wanda Cooper-Jones. We're going to hear for her, from her in just a minute from that show. But, but I first want to play for all of you uh, sound from another guest on that show, uh, a young man who was a good friend of Ahmad Arbery's, Akeem Baker. And, and I think what he has to say really moved me because here's another young African-American man well aware of what someone like Ahmad Arbery um, went through every day as he too did, Akeem uh, Baker did, and here he is talking about what the death of his friend meant to him. I was devastated. I was heartbroken uh, to see my friend being hunted down and killed like some animal. It, my, my heart just ached for him. It was like it was just open season on his life. There was no value placed on his life. There was no respect placed on his life. Um, he was not seen as a human being. Some days I just wake up just crying because clips keep replaying in my head of how he was, you know, just fearing for his life and fighting for his life. And it's, it's just devastating that that happened to someone. And, you know, it was like a, a clip from the 1920s and Mississippi burning movie or something like that. It was like, this is 2020 and this is still happening to black souls. Andra, no value placed on his life, no respect placed on his life. This is still happening to black souls. It's heartrending to hear him talk. Yeah, um, and I think the use of the term soul is actually really important here, that this is a person who was created by God, um, who had intrinsic value as a human being, the same way as anybody else did. Um, and uh based on sort of you know what we've seen on the video with the allegation against McMichael does that they didn't take his humanity seriously and said what they saw was a stereotype right a stereotype that's been built over hundreds of years in America that has been you know viscerally displayed visually in the United States particularly in the form of, of sort of uh, visual media 
uh, you know, for more than 100 years that creates blacks as brutes. And it was funny, you know, you know, the, the, the case here is, is not so much self-defense, but uh, the citizens arrest law. But I quickly went to a Reddit page where I was looking for, uh, you know, what people were saying. And there were people who were talking about the GoFundMe pages for the Arbery family and people talking in defense of the McMichael family. And their justification was they wrestled for the, he wrestled for the gun, he wrestled for the gun. So, like, clearly this is self-defense. And it's always sort of like that particular story that it's like white people get threatened, whether or not that's justified. And so, therefore, it is okay for black lives to be expendable. And that's the part that's sad. And, and you know, I think about my, you know, own life. And I remember sort of after the state of shootings in 2014, uh, police killings in 2014 and 2015, I think I've told this story before. One of my friends from high school who lives in Cobb County, who has two sons, um, who's African-American. Um, we were, uh, I think, both on the same flight coming uh, back to Atlanta from our, our homes in central Virginia. And she was like, it is open season on black men right now. And to see the fear in her face as a mother who had a son who was entering adolescence at that point um, was terrifying, right? And, like, I felt for my friend because, you know, even though this is something that all Black people face, including Black women, and I've certainly adjusted my behavior, you know, at times when I thought that, look, my gender wasn't going to save me in this particular instance, to see my friend literally be afraid for her boys is, you know, that's not normal and that's not typical across the country, and we have to acknowledge that. Um, you know what, Sam Bermestas, why don't we, based on what Andre just said, let's play that uh, a first clip from uh, 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 Ahmaud Arbery's uh, mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, the one in which Virginia Prescott, will hear Virginia ask her if uh, she has had the talk with her son and then listen to her answer and then continue with our panel. Wanda, have you and Ahmad had any conversations about racial profiling and violence against black men in this country uh, at any point? Yeah, yes, of course we've had the talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Ahmad was a, a baby, but then he, he grew to be a young man, a, a young adult that, that began to drive. And we really had the talk when he got the age where he was driving, because if he was driving off, I wasn't there to protect him. So we, we had several, several conversations about how to conduct himself if he's pulled over. I mean, I never worried about him being not mannered because he's, he's going to respect those who, who respect him. So I never worried about him on that part. But I told him, you know, I mean, you are, you are African-American and you are in South Georgia. So please be careful. Marissa, you, what, do you, what do you think when you hear that clip? It's heartbreaking, and um, the courage uh, that she has, that Ms. Jones has had throughout all of this and continuing to allow us to um, know about her, know about her son. Um, I am also the mother of a Black son. My son is 10 years old, and I hear, um, and, and you know, this, that's what I, why I keep trying to make the case that um, this is an important moment, and we need to be ta having this conversation, and Ahmad's life was so important and valuable to so many. Um, this is a pattern and the grief that she's suffering and we are suffering as a community and as a state is something that families are dealing with in, you know, all across our state and all across our country. And so I just think that this is the moment that we need to say, this is not an outlier. This is not a circumstance where, you know, this, this 
circumstance happen and we can kind of keep moving on one year and two year and three year, we continue to see uh, black lives taken um, and sanctioned violence uh, against um, black and brown communities. And um, I think as a, as a black mother and listening to that black mother and knowing that uh, these conversations will continue, they've been continuing in our community and I see no end in sight to the, the need to continue to talk to our um, you know, black men and women about the dangers of what it means to be in your skin um, when it comes to both private persons and law enforcement. Um, thank you for that. I'll tell you what I'd like to do. Let's, um, let's conclude this portion of the show by updating where things stand with the uh, case against the McMichaels and Brian right now. Uh, we'll take a break and then we'll talk more broadly about what kind of progress, if any, have we made in the last year in terms of uh, the issues that uh, we've already begun talking about. Larry, uh, where does this case stand? What, what, what's happening with the criminal case against the McMichaels and Brian? When will it get into court? Do we have any sense of what's happening? Uh, beyond the, the hearings that they can do remotely, some of these things remotely, there's, there's not much, uh, on the horizon, quite frankly, um, the, as you know, the Supreme Court, Georgia Supreme Court has extended, I think till February, till March 7, and possibly will again, uh, uh essentially a ban on jury trials and jury selections because of the, uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, all, all three men are in jail, have been since April, May, my apologies, have been since April. Um, all three have been denied bond. All three have pled innocent. Um, and that's where we stand. I talked to one of the, the attorney for Travis McMichael in this story I wrote the other day, and um, he he said he doesn't know that it's necessarily slowing it down um, because a lot of murder trials take a couple of years to get to trial. Um, that's as far as the nuts and bolts of going to court. That's about where we stand. You know, I do want to follow up on one aspect of this, though, because as you point out, uh, despite the fact that trials cannot get underway, jury trials uh, can't uh, move forward at this point in Georgia. Uh, there have been some motions filed by the defense that I think are at least worth a, a mention or two. Uh, for instance, one motion, Larry, uh, that was filed was the uh, lawyers for the McMichaels don't want Ahmaud Arbery. They, they asked the judge, we don't want him referred to as a victim because that will be prejudicial to the eventual jury that's impaneled, which struck me as just an extension of this notion that um, he that this this notion that this was an attempt at a citizen's arrest law gone awry uh, is we already know that that defense isn't going to be a, a viable one in this case. But to say that Ahmad Arbery isn't a victim is a is a troubling aspect of this case. Uh, yeah, you almost don't need me to say it, but um, it's. Uh... And I, I do still have to cover the trial, but, uh, yeah, he, listen to, everybody would do to listen to uh, GBI agent Richard Dow's uh, testimony that went on for about five hours during the, uh, during the first plea hearing. Um, that Arbery, Mr. Arbery was chased for seven minutes by two pickup trucks uh, on a couple of occasions. 
Um, this is all I'm attributing this to the GBI. On two or three occasions, he was cut off from trying to get out of the neighborhood. Uh, and everybody's seen that last video image that uh, Mr. Brian, uh, William Bryan filmed of Ahmaud Arbery trying to run around the passenger side of the truck. Travis McMichael standing in front of the door of the driver's side of the cab with a shotgun and somehow ends up in front of the truck with a shotgun. At that point is when Mr. Arbery goes for the gun. Uh, as um, uh, GBI uh, investigator Dow, Agent Dow said, uh, it looks like he was fighting for his life at that point. Uh, and 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 there and, and hence this question about whether or not uh, uh, Tamar he should be uh, w- whether the court should not call Ahmad Arbery a, a victim is so I think troubling to many people who are watching this unfold Tamar. Yeah, exactly. With really... emotion. Oh, go. No, go, go ahead, Larry. Tamar. No, and especially with emotions so raw after you know a string of police related you know or you know deaths of of young black people, especially over the last year, I think, um, because we haven't seen much resolution um, from Congress or from our national leaders. Um, We've seen sub on the state level, but I think folks are still feeling really hurt and raw by what we've seen and and not enough progress, I think, when you talk to a lot of folks. All right, let's talk about what progress we have seen in the last year and where we really need uh, still to do the hardest work of all. But before we do, let's take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman, Larry Hobbs, a reporter for the Brunswick News, uh, Marissa McCall Dodson of the Southern Center for Human Rights, and Dr. Andra Gillespie of Emory University all join us today as we look at the uh, one year uh, anniversary of the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Um, Tamar, we did see immediate reaction in the Georgia legislature once the Ahmad Arbery video became apparent. And for the first time in decades, uh, after efforts were made over and over again, Georgia passed a hate crimes law, largely because of the Ahmad Arbery case. I suppose you can say that we should be grateful. And his mother says in an interview with the AJC that was published this morning that she feels, thank goodness, something positive in that respect uh, has, has come out of this awful incident. But we do now have a hate crimes law in Georgia as a result of this tomorrow. Yeah, before last June, Georgia was one of only four states in the country without a hate crimes law. Um, there, there was a version that had been passed about 20 years ago, but a court had struck it down for being um, for being uh, unconstitutionally vague. And then for years, there were efforts to try and do something, but the legislature could never come to an agreement. Um, and so, yeah, you're right, Bill. You do hear Ahmaud Arbery's mother talking, at least 
it wasn't completely in vain my son's death. Um, but still, you talk to a lot of folks who say there, there's still plenty to be done, as we're seeing this session in the legislature as they debate the um, the state Civil War era citizens arrest law. And there's talk, there's talk even after potentially you know finishing that about repealing the state's stand your ground law, which is even more of a controversial issue. Yeah, uh, Marissa, weigh in on all that. The the hate crimes law that has passed, the fact that the governor's put his weight behind uh, uh, refashioning citizens' arrest in a pretty dramatic fashion and stand your ground. Why don't, would you uh, weigh in, Marissa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, in terms of um, racially motivated uh, violence, um, this conversation around uh, the fact that Georgia did not have a hate crimes law before last year um, is important. But I want to make make it clear that if Georgia had had a hate crimes law at the time that uh, Mr. Aubrey was killed, it would not have made one bit of difference. In order for hate crimes legislation to actually be important, effective, they, the person actually has to be charged uh, and prosecuted and convicted. Um, hate crimes is about sentencing. Um, and so I think that it was misplaced, although, um, again, the, the timing of it and, and recognizing that Georgia was one of four states that didn't have it, um, and that because we saw very clearly, you know, this racially motivated um, um, act of violence, it seemed like uh, a conversation point to have. But that, that is not what led to Ahmad's death. What happens, uh, the laws that um, were used, um, you know, inappropriately, um, depending on what side of it you were on, uh, were about citizen's arrest, um, stand your ground or self-defense, um, and prosecutorial misconduct. Um, what happened in this case as, in terms of why people weren't charged and uh, the, the timing for 70 days or more to have to wait for people to be charged is the problem. So when we're, thinking, we're now talking about what, we, what opportunities exist today to really address the wrongs and, and the problems in our law that allowed or um, are being used to justify what happened in Brunswick, we should be focused on citizens' arrest. We are uh, delighted that there is a proposal that the governor has gotten behind um, in HB 479 uh, that would outright repeal um, the citizen's arrest law. Uh, conversations around self-defense and stand your ground. Um, we need to have a real conversation in Georgia about uh, how our self-defense statutes are used um, most often um, to sanction violence against some and allow others to be um, able to uh, avoid prosecution and conviction. Um, and so uh, how, how cases are prosecuted, what happens when there's a conflict or a potential conflict, how do we hold our prosecutors more accountable? Those are all conversations to be had. I also want to add that since we're talking about state-sanctioned violence um, and we've been you know, talking about what happened with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, we need not go outside of Georgia's um, state lines to talk about no-knock warrants and, and you know, death by police and, and excessive use of force. We need to be really dealing with this in a way that keeps communities safe, um, and we are happy again to have the, the moment in time to do so. You know, Andra, uh, uh, Marissa really points to the breadth of things that have not been done here in Georgia. So, you know, we say, well, we have a hate crimes law, but as she points out, it's a penalty enhancement. Uh, it is something that is just dealt with after a conviction uh, and, and adds time uh, to a sentence. It doesn't deal with the act itself in terms of the uh, initial charging. Um, and all of the other things, stand your ground, prosecutorial misconduct. We have a very long way to go in Georgia, Andre, and the question is, do we think that, uh, that the state recognizes how far we have to go? 
Um, you know, I'm not sure about that. Um, because the things that Marissa identifies are structural issues and people responded to the Ahmad Arbery shooting because you see a man jogging down the street who obviously didn't have anything on him, right? So if he had been like, you know, stealing pipes from the house that he visited, right? He should have been carrying them in his hands or if they were going to tail him for that long, they would have seen him throw something at a bush somewhere. Um, um, none of that was that fact. And so you see a black man get hunted down. We responded to George Floyd because we see that white officer's knee on his neck and you hear him saying, I can't breathe and call for his mom and all kinds of um, other things happen, right? And it's visceral and it's obvious. And Americans are pretty, you know, pretty much agree on the obvious forms of racism, right? And, 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 and so they could see that and they could see where the problem is. But where people disagree is on the things that don't look as obvious, the things that are embedded in rules and practices that disproportionately affect some groups more than they affect other groups. And I still do not see um, enough movement on that where we're coming towards a consensus, right? You know, the previous administration denied the existence of systemic racism, point blank. Right. There are still prominent people who still have, you know, legitimate political aspirations who are denying that this stuff happens and that it happens systemically, often sometimes without our having to do much about it. And as long as we're going to have arguments about things that I think should be more obvious to folks, we, you know, we're still going to, you know, this is still going to be a pretty contested and a pretty tense issue. Um, Larry, you're down there on the coast, and so you have watched the Brunswick Police Department and how how things have developed around uh, problems and controversies around the Glynn County Police over the years, and certainly the Ahmad Arbery case played into that. W- what's happening in, with the Glynn Park County Police Department? What issues have come forward, and how are they addressing them? Uh, they have there is a um, police advisory panel. Uh, there's a, a that uh, gets together. They're talking. They're they're trying to talk about getting uh, reaccreditation, national and state. Uh, and uh, these things, of course, require them to uh, be a little bit more accountable, uh, especially with use of force and things like that. Um, uh, we have uh, R- Ricky Evans was uh, promoted uh, to acting. Uh, police chief, interim police chief right now, there will be a police search, which Ricky is part of. Ricky is a a black man born and raised here in Glenn County, um, knows his law enforcement, and he is uh, right now the the head of the department. It's gone through three police police, uh, chiefs since um, February 28th of last year when uh, Chief John Powell was indicted on essentially malfeasance charges uh, relating to uh, uh, trying alleged cover-up of a of an of an undercover officer's affair with a informant but I'm getting off track with that well Um, yeah let me let me just let me just let me interrupt you and just say what we we do learn what we have learned is that accusations of racism in the Glenn County Police Department were manifest long before the Amard Arbery case, right? Um, any department, but yes. I, I don't really right offhand know any specific or even remotely as, as, as serious as this one. 
as far as uh, an accident. Well, yeah, certainly. I get that. All right. Um, so we're going to watch to see what happens with citizens' arrest in the in the uh, legislature. And by the way, Tamar, the um, the citizens' arrest uh, law in this state. We talked about this briefly on the show about a week or so ago. The roots of this law are really, really grim and gruesome. This law is more than 150 years old. It was passed by a legislature, or it was put into effect by actually a, a group of individuals who believe it, it could be used to uh, justify capturing runaway slaves uh, in the, in the uh, 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 years right after the Civil War. It was then used again in Jim, during Jim Crow as a justification for uh, uh, whites going after uh, uh, black people. I mean, this had a horrifying history in the state. Yeah, uh, my colleague Bill Rankin did an interesting story actually tracing citizens' arrest laws all the way back to 13th century England when there were walled mm -hmm. cities. And, you know, if somebody so, so, stole something, you could shout and people would close the city gates. But obviously it's application in America where we've had, you know, systematic oppression of black people for hundreds of years obviously takes on an entirely um, different flavor to it. Um, I have a question for Marissa. I'm curious because what the governor is proposing does not fully repeal the citizen's arrest law that's been on the books in Georgia. It still allows um, people who work at businesses, security officers, off-duty police officers, um, truck inspectors to, to make some citizen's arrest laws. And I'm curious what you make of those carve-outs and if you're nervous that there could still be abuse if, if that ultimately ends up passing. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, and I think it's important um, because uh, it is true that House Bill 479 repeals outright citizen's arrest. So if that law, if that bill were to pass, there would be no authority for private persons, any private person, to conduct an arrest. In terms of what you're talking about as far as uh, authority for certain private persons to conduct detention, what we are doing is we are clarifying the law that exists now. Right now, uh, shopkeepers, restaurants, those more often we see it in stores, their loss prevention um, mechan um, mechanisms and protocols, how you can stop someone in the store who may be stealing from you and call the police. So when we started having conversations about repealing citizens' arrest, there were conversations about what about business owners who currently use our citizens' arrest statute to conduct a detention until law enforcement arrives. So what we did is, since that is already happening and we have some civil remedies around um, uh, suing for false imprisonment and what, what kinds of defenses can be articulated by shopkeepers who are doing these kinds of things, asking people to, to, to stay um, until law enforcement arrives. So what we've done is we've clarified what that, means, what that must look like. What House Bill 479 does is where there were folks who were using citizens' arrest, um, it wasn't an outlier in the way that we think about it. People were using it to conduct business on a regular basis. It just wasn't the kind of arrest that we think of in terms of taking custody of someone's body and taking them to a law enforcement officer. So what will happen is this bill, the law will be very clear as to when private persons in these particular circumstances can detain individuals, the, what needs to happen in terms of the use of force, uh, what kinds of force is um, prohibited and what kinds of force can and, sh and should be used. Um, it makes very clear um, in terms of the weight inspector that you mentioned, the private uh, detectives, all those things are already um, 
places in our current law that people are engaging with people, other people, private persons are engaging with other private persons. We don't think that any private person should ever conduct an arrest, but we do want to make sure that the law is clear as to how private persons can interact with people until law enforcement arrives. Um, Andra, I want to stick with the law enforcement aspects of, of what's happened in the year since Ahmad Arbery was killed. And, and I, and I want to talk about it in terms of uh, the fact that when Black Lives Matter really uh, this past summer and moving forward became a major force in looking at pol- the need for police reform, uh, it became an incredibly controversial subject uh, because the phrase uh, defund the police, you know, became so such a such a controversial question. Do we really want to get rid of police forces? Uh, do we want to reform police forces? So assuming that we are even President Biden and, and uh, yesterday Merritt Garland in his uh, uh, t- testimony for his confirmation hearing said, look, if I'm attorney general, I don't want to eliminate police departments. Neither does President Biden. So let's look at other aspects of this. We have seen some police departments around the country take at least um, small steps in terms of reforming, chokeholds have been outlawed in any number of uh, police departments. Um, p- uh, tear gassing in Philadelphia is uh, no longer uh, allowed in uh, trying to control uh, protesters. There are other at other kinds of small steps. The question is: Are we really moving in the right direction, or are these just minimal kind of cosmetic changes? Well, I mean, I think that that's a matter of debate. And I think that, you know, when we're thinking about this from a policy standpoint, uh, much of the United States government is structured to be incremental in terms of its change. And that's really frustrating for activists who want to see change, especially when they, you know, are facing massive injustice. Um, And, you know, I think it's also probably the natural bent of activists who tend to be younger um, who are learning more about the system. Um, but it's also part of the process of pushing as hard as you can and getting as much as you want and then going back and starting over again. So I think we do have to acknowledge the shortcomings of, um, you know, policies that have been enacted. We also need to see how effective those are at actually being able to move the needle and understand that part of the policy process is going back, evaluating what what happened to see how effective it is. And if it's not as effective as, as everybody agrees that it needs to be, then going back and starting over again. Um, And so, um, you know, what I hope is that um, activists don't get discouraged by incrementalism, Um, don't give up on the entire project, right, and become completely, um, you know, sort of, you know, cynical and withdrawn because uh, you can't achieve everything on the first go round, but that they use this as inspiration to say, okay, we got this, now let's see what else can happen. And then I think, you know, it's also really important to uh, have a really nuanced understanding of what people are asking for when they're talking about uh, defunding the police. So we've already talked about, um, you know, the connections to slavery with the citizens' arrest law. Um, You know, there are historians who will, uh, you know, tie our policing system to uh, slave catching. Um, you know, in the antebellum period um, as well. And this is what people are trying to disentangle. They're like, look, the basis of modern policing in the United States is rotten, and so they want to start over. They're not actually supporting anarchy. 
Um, they're not even always supporting defunding, even though there are people who are, you know, very much, in, uh, you know, in favor of prison abolition or in terms of, uh, you know, dismantling police departments and starting over again. Um, what they want some people to do in light of the circumstances surrounding the deaths of some um, black and brown people at the hand of police is to divest some of the funding that goes towards policing and uh, give it towards other social services that might actually be more appropriate at addressing the situation. So if somebody is having a mental health episode, do we really need to call a cop who has lethal force at their disposal where somebody might get killed? Or would it be better to have a social worker be able to help somebody um, check into um, a hospital where they can get treatment? Um, if you see somebody who, you know, is clearly under the influence of alcohol or drugs, do we need to arrest them or do we need to be able to take them to a rehab facility? Those are the types of questions. And I think if people got past the monikers and all of the sort of racist code words that were used to decry and demean that, we could actually have a much more fruitful conversation where not everybody's going to agree, but at least we could actually uh, mix, uh, move towards a consensus on some of these issues and concerns. Uh, Marissa, I know you want to get in here, be- and we need you to because of the work you're doing at the Southern Center, but let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way, and we'll come back with more uh, in just a minute. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, Tamar Hellerman, I want to make an executive decision with your support and with Amelia and Sam, too. One of the things I hoped we were going to get to talk about today was HB number one, uh, HB one in in the House, U.S. House, which is a huge bill, a Democratic reform bill, essentially, that will have broad consequences in terms of racial uh, equality. We're not going to get to that today. Let's let's decide right now that next Tuesday we will expand a conversation and talk about that bill and the many consequences uh, that it offers as we continue a conversation about racial justice. Um, Marissa uh, McCall Dodson, though, talk to us about police reform, defunding police, where the Southern Center stands on all this, and and how you think uh, things are going with police departments today. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just and I know that we are low on time, so I'll be uh, quick. I just wanted to um, continue to remind um, people that policing, more police, more resources for police don't actually make us any safer. Um, the the need to think about the health and, and safety of our communities is broader than policing and police budgets. And so um, to Andre's point about the reallocation of resources, the diversion of resources that have been traditionally spent on the things that actually don't keep us safer, um, the, the conversation needs to continue about evidence-based um, proposals and approaches that reduce recidivism, that improve health and safety. And again, police budgets and police funding is not the answer to that. Um, And I just want to let people know that while communities across the state are continuing to have conversations about how their funding should be um, allocated in terms of promoting health and safety, there are efforts at the state house to preempt uh, these kinds of conversations and efforts. Um, For example, House Bill 286, Okay, okay. Uh, House Bill 286 um, is on. Well, is expected to be heard on the House floor today. It is an anti-defund uh, bill. It, it will prohibit 
um, police budgets from being reduced um, by more than 5%, you know, with some exceptions. This again is compromising uh, community safety by protecting police budgets. And it is antithetical to conversations around uh, what actually keeps communities safe and allowing local elected officials and local communities to make those decisions that um, will impact their lives. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Bill, Marissa. It's one I've been wanting to talk about on the show for a few days. But tomorrow, the notion that a Republican in the state house has proposed a bill which would penalize communities, cities that reduce their police budgets by more than 5% uh, is kind of staggering for a couple reasons. One, because of what uh, Marissa said, uh, but then just in strictly partisan terms, uh, because— isn't this the Republican Party that's all about local control? It's really a troubling I, measure, and we'll see if it gets anywhere. I mean, it just goes to show how deeply politicized this issue has become and how you talk to people in different parties, and often it feels like they're on entirely different planets. Um, just look at the rhetoric we saw from Donald Trump on the campaign trail last year, even after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery. Um, you know, he was talking about law and order. He was talking about... Uh, suburban housewives, using his term, um, you know, being worried that people, you know, rioters are going to come and take over the, the suburbs. So um, it goes to show how hard it is if you're an advocate, um, as I'm sure Marissa can, can talk about, being able to kind of cut through um, kind of how partisan this has become. And it's, I think it's increasingly harder the longer we do this. Okay, but so we're r close to being out of time. But before we get there, Andra and Marissa, I, I'd really love to hear your take on this. Tamar's obviously quite right. Uh, Donald Trump ran a scare campaign uh, uh, aimed at suburban, particularly suburban women, uh, who would vote Republican because they were worried about uh, uh, being overrun by minorities. But it didn't work. He lost the election. Is that at least some in a very general way, sign of hopefulness that we are moving in a more positive direction or not? Uh, Andra, you get about a minute and then I'll give you the same, Marissa. Well, one of the things that I'll point out is if we look at exit polls, there's certain things that we can't tease out. But if we look at the white vote in this state, um, if we look at um, what the white college educated vote in this state, I mean, it still went with Donald Trump. And so, you know, people talk about national trends. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think that takes away from and this doesn't mean that there weren't more whites in this state and, you know, elsewhere who voted uh, for, for Joe Biden as opposed to Donald Trump. Uh, but that thing that also takes away from the story of the mass mobilization of people of color. Um, and I would mm. say, you know, in this state, most white people voted their party, which was a Republican, despite what Donald Trump said. Th thank you for, for that yeah. concise answer. Marissa, you got about 35, 40 seconds on that. Yeah, I totally agree with Andre. I just would say in terms of uh, where most people are in terms of uh, what will work for our, for our country, um, you'd be surprised that most people aren't as extreme as some of the things that were, you know, promoted. Um, and we have some room to believe that some of the, you know, all we need to do is continue to, to have evidence-based proposals and make the case to a broader um, um, section of our community that changes are real and need to happen. Um. Thank you for ending on a, a, a fairly positive note, uh, both you, uh, uh, Marissa, and you, uh, Andra. So that's it for us today. We are out of time. Tamar Hallerman, Larry Hobbs of the Brunswick News, Marissa McCall-Dodson, and Dr. Andra Gillespie, thank you for being with us today. We're back 
Uh, talking about uh, state politics tomorrow, uh, what's happening in the legislature will be a big part of our conversation. Um, in the meantime, as we run out of time for today's show, my thanks to Sam Burmis-Dawes, to Amelia Brock and Jesse Neiswanger for their work on the show today. I'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, please take care, stay healthy, and wear your masks. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow.